Heavenly Father, we do come this morning once again in the awesome privilege of gathering in your name to worship you. In the awesome privilege of not only lifting our voices in your praise, but turning our ears and our hearts toward you that you might instruct us according to your will. That you might renew us in our faith and in our covenant with you and remind us that we are your people and you are our God. And that you are to be worshipped. You are to be praised. Lord, we acknowledge this morning our dependence upon you. Our total inadequacy within ourselves to to do, to understand, to fulfill your will. So we pray and we plead for your spirit to come. Fill us, Lord. Fill us that we might hear. Fill us that we might understand. And in understanding, we might live according to your will. But we know that you are able to do all this and more our prayer this morning that you would be willing, willing to magnify yourself through Jesus Christ. Be made much of in this place. Be magnified as we come to your word. Show us great and wonderful things that belong to Jesus Christ and our salvation in him. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. William Cooper was a, was a man of, of many affections. That's Cooper with a W. He's a man of many affections, and oftentimes those affections ran in him deep, and they ran in him confused. So deep and so confused oftentimes that they caused long bouts with depression and melancholy, oftentimes to the point of seeking to commit suicide. And even with his bouts of depression and even with his attempts at suicide, these could not suppress the expressions and even the affections of praise and thanksgiving for his Lord. He became known in his day as one of the most beloved and accomplished poets to live. And today, many of his poetic expressions we sing as hymns. There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins, where sinners plunge beneath the flood, lose all their guilt to stain. Those are the words that come from the pen of William Cooper. Arguably, however, his most famous and oft-quoted poem begins with these words. God moves in mysterious ways. His wonders to perform. He plants his footsteps in the sea. And he rides upon 
the storm. For Cooper, there was nothing, nothing more mysterious and yet nothing more wonderful than the God who had redeemed him. This morning, as we look at Mark chapter 6, I, I believe we behold the mysterious and the awesome way of Jesus as he literally plants his footsteps on the sea and literally rides upon the storm. Mysterious and awesome are often the ways of our Lord. We come to Matthew, we come to Mark chapter 6, beginning in verse 45, having left the previous account of Jesus and his disciples as they are there with the thousands of people gathered as Jesus has miraculously fed the multitude there by the seashore. It was the largest miracle that Jesus ever accomplished. There was more people involved in this miracle than perhaps all of the other miracles of Jesus combined. And here he was, whining and dining. Here were the people, funning and sunning. Relaxing on the seashore, having been fed and having been full, you can imagine the excitement that was there by the seashore. People had been there all day. And all of a sudden, Jesus breaks out food from nowhere. So much so that not only is everyone filled, not only is everyone full, for there are plenty, plenty leftovers. You can imagine the excitement around the sea that, that day. All the people were clamoring to get closer to Jesus as everybody was excited about what would happen. You can imagine that they, at that point, is going, I was thinking, okay, now we're going to establish a kingdom. We got a king who can provide food out of a hat. What more can you want? Except Jesus knows the hearts of human beings. He not only knows the hearts of the crowd, he knows the hearts of his disciples. He knows his disciples are probably thinking the same thing. And so the Bible says, as Mark is off to say, immediately. Immediately, right away, Jesus says, okay, enough of this. Y'all get out of here. I'll deal with the crowd. So he tells them, get in the boat. You don't have an option. You don't have a choice. The Bible says he made them. He spoke to them with such authority, I am sure that it burned in their hearts and immediately, without question, no matter what had gone on previously, those men got in the boat. The Bible says he compelled them. He made them get in the boat. Why does Jesus 
make them get in the boat again. This is the mysterious, awesome ways of Christ. He tells his disciples to get in the boat, and he tells them to meet him on the other side. Get in the boat. Meet me on the other side. I got some business to take care of. He sends the disciples away, tells them to get on the boat. Why? Because he's going to dismiss the crowds. He's going to scatter the crowds because, as we have seen before, Jesus isn't much in the crowds. Even though they continually gather around him, it seems that over and over again, the bigger the crowd gets, the less impressed Jesus is. Contrary to us. Jesus disperses crowds. So again, he disperses this one. But he not only sends the disciples away so that he could dismiss the crowd, he sends the disciples away so he could pray. Not only so that he might disperse the crowd, but so that he might do what he often did. And that is get alone and commune with the Father. He sends his disciples away so that he might dismiss the crowd so that he could get alone and pray. He sends his disciples away so that he could once again show the disciples who he really is. You imagine there by the seashore, I'm thinking the disciples are thinking, wow, look what Jesus did. Jesus is feeding the 5,000. Everybody's gathering around. Everybody's having a good time. It's a big picnic on the seashore. And I get the sense that they're probably getting a little too familiar with Jesus. You know how you do when you're sitting around with eating with somebody and you let your hair down and take your shoes off and you're relaxing and then you begin to get familiar to one another and to talk to one another because when you begin to eat with people, there is a sense in which the barriers come down and we are all on par and we are all at the same stage. Whenever Jesus' disciples began to get too familiar with him, He shows them once again who he really is. He shows them, I am not like you. He sends his disciples away so that he could once again show them who he really is. He sends his disciples away to dismiss the crowd so that he could pray, so that he could once again show the disciples who he really is. Jesus dismisses the crowd because he's not in the crowd, but what he is into is communion with the Father. And so he prays. After he dismisses the crowd, the Bible says that he goes along, alone. He gets away alone goes up on the mountain to pray. The prayers of Christ are mysterious and awesome. Mysterious ways of God, the awesome ways of God that Christ would pray. Had you ever thought about that, that Christ would get away to pray? I mean, to think about that is both mysterious and glorious. And in the Gospel of Mark, we are told that Christ got a way to pray by himself at least three times. 
And each of these teaching us the importance and significance of communion with God, especially at key moments in our lives. When does Jesus get away to pray? Well, in Mark chapter 1 and verse 35, as he is preparing to become fully engaged in his public preaching ministry, the Bible says that he gets alone. So much so that the disciples have to come and find him to find out what the Lord is doing. Right after that, Jesus says, let's go preach. Let's go proclaim the gospel. This is the reason why I've come. In Mark chapter 14 and verses 35 through 39, as he is preparing to endure the pain and the suffering that is the crucifixion for the redemption of his people, what does Jesus do on the evening prior? The Bible says that he gets alone in the garden of Gethsemane, away from his disciples once again. Here in Mark chapter 6, as he has fed the 5,000 plus people, Jesus immediately sends his disciples away so that he might once again get alone and pray. But why? Why? Why does Jesus need to pray? Is he not God? Why does Jesus need to pray? Isn't he every moment of every day in communion with God? Isn't he every moment and every day receiving directives from heaven itself? Is there any confusion or confliction in the heart or mind of God, of Jesus? Why would the Son of Man need to pray? Does he seek the face of God? like you and I do, so that he might know something that he does not know? This is something to be mindful of and to remember that Jesus is the Son of God, the eternal second person of the Trinity, and yet at the same time, he is a man. He has come into the world, and he has taken on flesh. And in the flesh, beloved, he is subject to all the temptations of the flesh. Read that in, in, in Matthew chapter 4. What the temptation of, of Christ do we not? That even he, the Son of God, has come in the flesh. And the enemy knows that the eternal Son of God has been manifested in the flesh. And therefore has subjected himself to the temptations of the flesh. And even in the flesh, Jesus reminds us the primary weapon you have against temptation in the flesh is communion with God. It's prayer. It's at times alone, away from it all, away from everyone, where God is able to speak to you and you are able to speak with him and you are able to hear 
And it's those times that you receive, even more so than others, the empowerment of the Spirit for the battle against temptation. I don't know exactly what Jesus prayed when he went away, but in, in the context, I, I am tempted to believe that he prayed to fight temptation. Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 15 reminds us that we have a high priest who has, not, who has also felt the temptations that we have felt, that he is not untouched and unmoved by the things that we struggle with, but has in every way been tempted like us and yet without sin. If I'm looking at this text, it seems to me there is potential for a huge temptation here. And that is the temptation of success. He imagined the temptation of the crowds. They're pressing upon Jesus as they're wanting more of Jesus, as they're seeking to prop Jesus up, as they're seeking to establish Jesus as the king before the time that God has established things. The same thing that Satan had wanted to do in Christ's temptation in Matthew chapter 4 to make him king without the cross, to establish a kingdom. According to the voices of the crowds, rather than to the voice of God the Father. Jesus disperses the crowd. Jesus sends his disciples away. Because he wants to pray. Beloved, there may not be no more greater temptation for us than the temptation of success. We began to, to smell ourselves. We began to think more highly of ourselves than we ought to. We begin to think that in and of ourselves we have done something. And that more than anything else tends to pull our hearts and affections away from the God who has created us and redeemed us. Imagine that even after the weekend like we have had with the sound worship conference, it is easy for us to be tempted to think that we are something. And we have accomplished something. We look around at the hard work that people have done and the many hours that people have put in and we begin to think that that, what, what, that which happened in sound worship was actually a result of our labors. We began to think, oh man, no problem. We could do this again and again. And if we got this many this time, imagine how many we'll have next time. There's no greater temptation than the temptation to success. Jesus knows this. So rather than spend time rejoicing in the successes of feeding thousands upon thousands of the voices of the crowd, Jesus sends them away, sends disciples away. And what does he do? He goes away to pray. 
goes away to pray and to be reminded of his mission that he is to be a suffering savior. That he is to be a crucified savior. He goes away to pray so that he might resist temptation. But I, am, I imagine that he not only prays for himself, but he also prays for his disciples. Prayers for his disciples that their faith might be bolstered, not in the miracles, but in Christ. Not in what he is doing, but in who he is. He prays for his disciples because he knows that these are key moments in their lives and that Satan desires to deceive them and even sift them, even through the avenues of success in ministry. This wouldn't be surprising to me if he's up on the mountain praying for his disciples because Jesus often prayed for his disciples, did he not? In Luke chapter 22 and verses 31 through 34, he comes to Peter and says, Peter, Satan has desired you to sift you like wheat. But behold, Peter, I have prayed. For you. As I prayed for you. He not only prayed for Peter specifically, he prayed for all of the disciples. In John chapter 17, we are reminded that Jesus says that I have prayed not for the world, but I have prayed for those you have given me out of the world. That they might be with me. Jesus didn't pray for the world. But he prayed for those he had come to redeem out of the world. Jesus prayed for Peter. He prayed for the rest of the disciples. And the Bible says that he continually prays for us. Hebrews chapter 7 and verse 25. That we have a high priest who ever lives to make intercession for us. Where is Jesus? Now the disciples probably know where Jesus went. Jesus went upon the mountain so that he could pray for them. How do we know that? Because Jesus rose from the grave, ascended into heaven, and sits at the right hand of God the Father, and there the Bible says, He prays for us. Praise that we might not fall in temptation, into temptation. Pray that we might understand that every day Satan desires to sift us like wheat, and the only thing that keeps us is the prayers of Christ. Pray that we don't fall into the trap of our own success. Praying that our eyes would be continually and steadily upon him. Praying that we don't ever forget how much every day in every way we stand in need of Christ. He prays. He prays then. He prays now, he ever lives to pray. 
prayed that they would resist temptation. He prayed for his disciples that they would be strong and built up in the faith. He prayed that they might remember his promises. Matthew chapter 28 and verse 20 is one of the most glorious promises in all the scriptures for those of us who love the Lord when we are reminded that the Lord Jesus Christ himself will not leave us nor forsake us for he is with us always even to the ends of the earth. That's a prayer. He prays that we would remember. mysterious and glorious ways of Christ that he would pray. Not only are they mysterious and glorious in the, the prayers of Christ, but so are the promises of Christ mysterious and glorious. For the promise is that he will be with us always, even until the ends of the earth. Now that is a promise that we have after the fact of here to disciples. That is a promise that disciples became aware of after the resurrection of Christ. But then after that resurrection of Christ and they begin to look back on their lives and times with him, they could see that that was a promise that Christ was working out all the time. We see it here, do we not? For he says to them, he tells the disciples to go before him to the other side. There's an inherent promise in there, isn't it? There's a promise. There's a promise that if Christ is going to get to the other side, they're going to get to the other side. Christ did not tell them I'm going over to the other side. Hope you guys can make it. But he says, go before me to the other side. Go before me over to Bethsaida. Why? Because that's where I'm going. And you are assured of getting there as I am. You know, that is glorious and awesome, isn't it? But there is a mystery here, too. The mystery is that the word of Christ leads them into the trouble. That Christ himself leads them into the trouble. You know, it is not being outside of the will of God where all the trouble is likely to come. Oftentimes, the trouble comes even within the will of God. That God himself leads his people into the difficulties. That God himself leads his people into the storms of life. That God himself leads his people into the trials. You know, it's an interesting statement concerning Jesus as he goes out into the wilderness to be tempted of the devil. The Bible says before he went out that it was the Spirit of God who pushed him, who led him into the temptation. 
Oftentimes, we think that if we get in a bind, that we get into a predicament, that we get into trouble, that somehow, some way, we are outside the will of God. And beloved, that just may not be the case. The trouble just may be the will of God fit for you so that you might be reminded of the promises of God. So that you might be reminded that God is a sustainer and a provider in the midst of your troubles. So that you might be reminded that everything that you have and everything that you are ultimately is coming from him. You know, when Israel comes out of the out of Egypt, and they're, they're coming out of Egypt, and God has them on the march toward the promised land. And the Bible says that they come to a dry spot, a place called Mara. And Mara means bitter. And they've come to a bitter place. They've come to a bitter place where the water is bitter. They're not outside the will of God. They haven't taken a trail that God has not led them on. They have not taken a detour at this point. This is the path that God has led them on, and he leads them down to a place called Mara. Well, there is no water to drink. And he leads them there so that he himself might turn those bitter waters into sweet so that they might know that he is their God who provides, who protects, who sustains, and who satisfies them. So it is with the disciples. Just because, beloved, you are in trouble, things are hard. Just because the winds of life seem against you does not mean that you are outside the will of God. In fact, it may be that you are right in the will of God. God is seeking to teach you. 2 Corinthians chapter 12. Paul says, They were given to me a thorn in the flesh messenger of Satan to buffet me so that I might not get too puffed up in myself. And so I prayed to God three times, Lord, please remove it. Lord, please remove it. Lord, please remove it. If anybody gets a prayer through, it's Paul. And Jesus says, Paul, the thorn is not outside my will. The trouble is not outside my will. The thorn is my will for you. So that you might know that what you accomplish in the ministry is solely by my grace. So it is here. The disciples still don't understand. And we're not too hard on them because too few of us understand as well. 
Disciples still don't understand. They are still too focused on what Jesus was doing and not on who Jesus is. We see that at the end, but the Bible says at the end of this passage, they didn't get the miracle of the loaves. They didn't get the turning. They didn't get the multiplication of the fish and the bread. But they're going to get this one. Jesus is going to make sure that they get this one. The bad weather has three purposes, I believe. The bad weather that the disciples run into reveals our need for a Savior, does it not? When you come up against bad times and bad weather, you need saving. You need help. You need redeeming. The bad weather, the storms in our life reveal to us that we need help. That we need a Savior. The bad weather also reveals to us that Jesus has the power to save. And there is one who plants his footsteps in the sea and he rides upon all our storms. Not only reveals our need of a Savior, Reveals Christ's power to save. The bad weather reminds us also that there is a peace that comes only from Jesus, even in the midst of the storm. Disciples, not only this passage reminding us of the prayers of Christ and the promises of Christ reminds us here of the peace of Christ. The comfort and the consolation of the gospel are always found in these words. Don't miss this. And the words are these words. Do not be afraid. For disciples were afraid They were fearful. But notice this time that the fear is not the fear of the water. Remember the the first time they out on the boat in Mark chapter 4 and the storm is raging and and the billows are rolling and, and everything is against them and the water is coming into the boat and they're fearful for their life as Jesus is sleeping down in the boat. Last time they were afraid of the water. It's not the water they're afraid of this time. Yeah, the, the, the wind was rough. And literally the Bible says that they were straining against the oars. For the wind was tormenting them. They were struggling. They were struggling. And it was at night, and perhaps it was probably the case that they were keeping pretty close to the shore as they were making their way around to get to the other side. They didn't want to get out in the middle. So they were probably keeping pretty close to the shore as they were making their way around to the other side. But the problem is, is that the wind came and blew them away from the shore. 
And now, if you, look, if you read the account in the, in the other Gospels, now they are some four or five miles off course. And they're straining. And the wind is tormenting them. And they're working hard. When I compare this with the account in chapter 4, with Jesus sleeping in the boat, it's It does not appear to me that here in chapter 6 that the situation is life-threatening. It doesn't seem like it's really life. It's just frustrating. It's just frustrating. It's just difficult. It's just tiring. It's just depressing. It's just hard. Because they're just oaring and they're rowing and they're rowing and they're not getting anywhere. Can somebody testify to that? It's not life-threatening. The situation isn't threatening your life. It's just hard. You're just tired. Seems like you're just fighting the wind all the time. For every step you take, you take two back. For every moment of sunshine, there are days of rain. He's just tired. He's just frustrated. No, 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 you know you're not going to die. No, you know the world isn't coming to an end. But you're about ready just to give up and just stop roaring and let the wind just take you wherever it's going to take you. This is the situation of the disciples. It's in the midst, in three, four, five o'clock in the morning. It's dark. And they're rowing. And they know by now they should be where they were planning to be. And there is nowhere in sight. This is why, beloved, I believe we read the mysterious words here. And they are mysterious where it says, and he meant to pass them by. Excuse me? Jesus is going along his old merry way, hopping and skipping across the water. He's not thinking about the wind. He's not thinking about the waves. And he knows that the disciples are not in a life-threatening situation. And if they remember the promises, they're going to get there. So I'm just going. They'll be there. They're all right. But as he's making his way across the water, as he's walking on the water, the Bible says that he hears them cry out because they were afraid. Not of the water. They were afraid of who or what they saw walking on the water. And they cried out. What did they cry out? The same thing you would have cried out. Oh my God. Is that something walking on the water? The Bible says literally. The Greek word there is that they saw phantasma. That they saw a phantom. They knew they couldn't have been seeing a person. 
So they figured, oh my goodness, we're seeing a ghost. And they cry out in fear. They can't believe what they're seeing. And they are frightened. Not of the water. They're afraid of Jesus. As he is manifesting who he really is. For he says to them, as he comes to the boat, do not be afraid. It is I. In the Greek, the words are ego and me. Literally saying, I am he. Do not be afraid. I am he. I am he who walks on water. I am he who calms the raging seas. I am he who feeds 5,000 with just a couple of fish and a few loaves of bread. I am he who speaks forth those things that be not as though they were. I am he who changes water into wine. I am he who gives sight to the blind, who causes the deaf to hear. I am he who spoke all things into existence. I am he, the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I am he who was dead, but am alive forevermore. I am he. Here, beloved, once again, Jesus is affirming to his disciples that he is the son of God. That he is God of very God. For who walks on water? Who walks on water? God does. In Job chapter 9 and verse 8, God alone stretches out the heaven and tramples down the waves of the sea. Only Jesus, beloved, can walk on water. If he can walk on water, then only Jesus can calm your fears. Only Jesus can calm your fears. I am he who calms your fears. So he says to them, fear not. But you know, fear not is only a comfort when it comes from the one who is able to do something about the fear. Because if you're in the boat with the disciples and they see a ghost coming and you look to them and say, bro, fear not. (laughs) Don't be afraid. (laughs) You're going to be, boy, you done lost your mind. Who are you telling me not to be afraid? Fear not is only a comfort. When it comes from someone who can do something about that of which you are afraid. When it comes from Jesus, it's because he can do something about your fears. And it is only Jesus who can. 
And until Jesus tells you not to be afraid, you should be afraid. Until Jesus tells you not to be afraid, you should be afraid. Be afraid that your sins will find you out. You need to be afraid. Be afraid that no sin shall escape the judgment of God. You should be afraid. Be afraid that all sin is worthy of hell's eternal flames and damnation. Be afraid. Be afraid that God is just and will punish sin. Be afraid. You need to be afraid until Jesus tells you not to be afraid. Don't listen to anybody else telling you not to be afraid. Don't listen to a preacher telling you not to fear. Don't even listen to Joel Osteen. No matter how comforting and, and, and suave his voice may sound, telling you not to be afraid, you be afraid until Jesus tells you not to be afraid. Because it is only Jesus who can actually, who can actually do something about that of which you should be afraid. And that name is the judgment of your sins. You be afraid until Jesus says, fear not. Until his spirit bears witness with your spirit that you belong to him. Don't take confidence if I tell you you belong Christ. Be confident when he says you belong to him. This is the good news of the gospel because everyone who comes to him and everyone who hears his voice and everyone who responds in faith hears Christ saying, fear not. This is the comfort of the gospel. It's always been the comfort of the gospel. It's this comfort that alleviates our fear of the judgment of sin. Isaiah 40 and verses 1 and 2. God says to the nation of Israel, Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem to cry out to her that our warfare is ended, that all her iniquity is pardoned. Comfort, comfort my people. You don't understand that the words do not fear are found throughout the Bible. They're found throughout the scriptures. Why? Because sin brings a healthy fear of the wrath and judgment of God. And when the gospel comes, it must come with the pronouncement. There's no longer need to be afraid. And so you see this from Genesis to Revelation over a over hundred times. The words, either do not fear or, or fear not, are, are spoken. In Luke chapter 2, when the angels come to the shepherds out there on the countryside, what do the angels say to the shepherds? Fear not, for I bring to you good news that is of a great joy. I bring you the message of the gospel. Don't be afraid. 
Jesus speaking to his disciples in, uh, in John 14, where he says, Let not your heart be troubled, neither let them be afraid. It is Jesus speaking to the women, on, it is the angel speaking to the women, and Jesus speaking to the women on that first Easter morning as they come to the tomb and they find the tomb empty. And the angel says, do not fear. And later on, Jesus himself says to those faithful ladies, do not be afraid. No need to fear anymore. He has conquered death. He has conquered the grave. He has conquered your sin, and you need not be afraid. It is Paul saying in Romans chapter 8, Now therefore, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Do not be afraid. Over and over and over again, the gospel comes to us and says, do not fear. If you believe in Christ, do not be afraid. When Jesus gets in the boat, not only did the wind cease, but so too did the worries and the fears. The wind ceased. So did the worries and the fears. Except they were moved to awe once again. They were moved to amazement. They were moved to astonishment. Their faith once again was placed not in what Jesus did, but who he was. And they were astonished. They were awed. They were amazed. They didn't understand from the fish and the bread. They understand now. He's not like us. He's different. That's right. Because he's God. And the only response to God is a holy reverence and awe. So we've been talking about this weekend concerning worship, have we not? Jesus walks on the water so that the, the, the disciples might understand that it is he they are to worship with reverence and awe. Revere him because he is holy and you are not. Isn't that what Isaiah said in Isaiah in chapter 6 when he sees the Lord high and lifted up upon his throne when he beholds Jesus in all of his majesty with the angels gathered around the throne and singing in antiphonal praise, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God almighty. When Isaiah sees the holiness of God, what is his response? He is reminded. That he is unholy. He is reminded that he is in the presence of that which demands worship. 
in Luke chapter 5. And Peter and his, his partners have been fishing all day. And Jesus comes and he presses out in the boat and says, press out a little bit. Let me teach the crowd. And Jesus teaches the crowd a little bit. Then after the teaching session is done, Jesus says, Peter, throw your net over the boat and collect a whole bunch of fish today. And Peter says, no, nah, Lord, I mean, we, we've been fishing all day. There's just nothing out here. I know fishing. You know teaching. I know fishing. I didn't interrupt you when you were teaching. Don't interrupt me with my fishing. And Jesus says, indulge me, young man. (laughs) Indulge me. Throw the net over the boat. He throws the net over the boat. And he pulls in a catch. The likes of which he had never seen before. And he realizes that he's in the presence of the righteous one. Because Jesus is right and he is wrong. And what is the only response? It's worship. It's worship. Now that's what we've been talking about all weekend. When you come into the presence of Christ, He's holy, you're not worship. When you come into the presence of Christ, He's right, you're wrong, worship. Be in awe. Because even though he's holy and you're not, even though he's right and you're wrong, he doesn't say, depart from me. He says, fear not. Be not afraid. Come into my presence with fullness of joy. Jesus walks on the water so that his disciples and you and I might know who it is we are supposed to worship. That, beloved, is the foundation of sound worship. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Indeed, the earth and even this place is filled with your glory. Father, it is our desire once again that we would worship Christ. Worship him in his holiness. Worship him in his righteousness. Be reminded that we are not holy, that we are not right. Yet we desire you to say, once again, fear not and do not be afraid. Father, is anyone here under the sound of my voice who, who doesn't know you, who, who hasn't come to understand the holiness of Christ and has not bowed the knee in worship of him? Pray right now that they would do so. Bow down and worship Christ. Worship him in holiness. Worship him in his splendor and in his glory. Grant unto them faith. Grant unto them repentance. Grant unto them all. This we pray in Jesus' holy name. Amen.